from the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to It's a Long Story. This is a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas and my name is Mark Fennell. My name is Eve Ensler and what did I want to be as a child? I wanted to be useful. One evening in 1996, the basement of the Cornelia Street Cafe in New York's Greenwich Village came alive when Eve Ensler performed the Vagina Monologues for the very first time. Since then, her play has been translated into 48 languages and presented in over 140 countries, with the world's best stage and screen actors performing it to packed houses. In the 20 years that have passed since the premiere, Eve has gone on to write many more plays and books and start global political movements that have raised over $100 million for grassroots groups. Eve, you say that you wanted to be useful. I'm curious for you, What did useful look like to you as a kid? I was a desperately unhappy child. And because I grew up in such a world of violence, I wasn't very liked because I was a desperate person. And so I was unpopular and I was excluded and it was awful. And I think I just wanted to, to live my life so other people didn't feel that. I even started a club for unpopular girls when I was 10 years old. Big membership? (laughs) The sad part was that most of them were unpopular because they were antisocial. So they didn't want to be part of my club. But I tried, you know, because I at least wanted to organize it so we wouldn't be so pathetically alone and fragmented. As an anecdote that illuminates your life, I cannot think of a better one. A club for unpopular girls. So the desire to bring together a group. The of the disenfranchised. <laughs> the disenfranchised. That's you to a T, really, isn't it? Let's uh, let's backtrack for a second here. One of the recurring themes, the thing that kind of runs through your life, is the power of words and storytelling. And I'm wondering, was there a moment when you realised that words and storytelling had that power to unify, to motivate and change people? I'm trying to think when I first realised about story. I, I think, you know, what's really interesting about it, I think for my childhood, because I was never believed in an ironic way, it made me a m- more dedicated to the notion of telling the truth. It was as if at some point in my life, somebody would believe me. I think going to the theater was a huge part of my childhood. Like the first thing I ever saw was Oliver. Really? Yeah. It was the first play I ever saw. And disenfranchised young disenfranchised. person. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> but I think it was like, oh my God, people are on stage talking about what's happening to them. It's possible to talk about what's going on inside your private, personal, political reality outside and people will actually listen. And that was kind of a mind-blowing idea. But I think also I grew up in the middle of the civil rights era. I grew up in the middle of, you know, feminism and when people were really beginning to talk about oppressions that hadn't been allowed to be talked about. So I think I was, I was created in a, st- a time of stories that were breaking through consciousness. You were not a happy child. Your father was physically and sexually abusive and your mother didn't believe you. What is it that people get wrong about that kind of abuse well, it wasn't that my mother didn't believe me because in point of fact, I, my mother, in terms of the sexual part, I never talked to her about okay, that, right. but she actually witnessed some of it, you know, because my father would do very weird things when I was in my teens that were like visible yeah. and she certainly witnessed the battery. She was a very disempowered person. And I would say that my father had four children, my brother and my sister and I and my mother, like she was one of his children, like she was that disempowered in the family structure. I think what people get wrong 
And I, I was thinking about this the other night. I always read about people who commit terrible acts. I try to really study their childhoods. Where do people begin? What happens to people? I don't think people are born killers. I don't think they're born hateful. I think children are radically abused and they go in different directions as a result of that abuse. And I think what people get wrong is that the community is part of protecting children. You know, when I grew up, nobody would consider intervening. Children were private property, right? In, in the patriarchal family, they were owned and determined and run by the father, right? So no one would ever think if they saw somebody having a bruise or if they saw someone very depressed, you know, that they had a right to intervene. In. And I think what people get wrong is that nobody owns anybody. Children aren't owned by parents. You know, children, if they're lucky, they get to serve children and love children. Um, but no one belongs in the sense of ownership to anybody. We belong to people out of choice and we belong to people out of a desire to belong to people. And I think if people see people who are being abused, you should intervene on their behalf because sometimes abuse becomes something that is self-fulfilling. It just, you just keep doing it. It's a pattern. And, and sometimes when there are interventions, that breaks that pattern. And sometimes when there are interventions, it means that child needs to go away from those parents because they can't stop abusing them. But abuse is forever. You know, it doesn't ever go away. How do you move past that so you can be useful? I don't know why my brain and my system worked a certain way, but I just... I think I was in such unbearable pain that all I could do was say, find somebody else who's in worse pain, <laughs> you know, <laughs> find somebody else who's in worse pain than you and figure out how to support them. And actually it proved to be a quite healing mechanism, you know, because if I were just to wallow in, in my own madness, I would have left this world a long time ago. I mean, beginning with the unpopular girls, I think it was as if I knew somehow that if I could find people who were suffering the way I was suffering, I wouldn't be alone. I would be able to tell my story. I would be able to talk, but I also would be able to find a way to support them. You know, there's a at City of Joy, which is this amazing um, revolutionary center we have in the Congo. One of the, there's 10 principles and one is give what you want the most. I really believe in that principle, like give what you want the most. When did you learn that? <laughs> I had this imaginary character when I was young named Mr. Alligator. And when things got really, really bad, I would go and I would call him on the phone really loudly so everyone could hear me. And I would say, come pick me up. And then I would pack my bag and I would go and I would wait for him all day. And, you know, he didn't come. But waiting for him really kept my imagination and my consciousness and my hope alive. And then years, years later, with this wonderful woman named Agnes Perio, um, who is one of this great activists of the world who's been working in the Maasai community in Norak, Kenya for years to stop female genital mutilation. We went and together, you know, the V-Day movement with her, we opened the first safe house in, in Maasai land to end cutting. And we were walking down this path and all these people were singing and dancing and all these girls were just crying because they had a place where they'd be safe. And we got to cut the ribbon and I suddenly went, oh my God, Mr. Alligator came. <laughs> like it was just like full circle. I think we hold the healing of each other inside us if we're willing to reach out to do that. I think we heal ourselves by healing other people. There's no doubt about it. Did you ever have that moment of honesty with your mom where you did finally tell her what happened? I did. How did that play out? It was really interesting and moving and hard. It was really the hardest thing I ever did in my whole life. And I think to some degree, she had a moment where she really could own it. Looking back, she said, of course, it's absolutely clear. Like, look at all the signs. But then there was part of her that had to then go into denial about it again because it was too hard for her to process at that point in her life. 
my mother and I ended up okay before she left this world. And for me, it was a turning point in my life because being able to tell her freed me of that burden. I didn't tell her so she would believe me, you know, or she would love me more. She would give me, I told her because I needed to tell her. I needed that to be out on the table and I didn't go in with a need. And because I didn't go in with a need, it, it did the trick for me in the sense that I wasn't walking around holding that my whole life, you know, and it wasn't also blame. It was just like, this happened. You need to know this happened. I'm not going to pretend to you that this didn't happen because I can't stand that idea. And, and so much of the world we're living in right now is just these repressed truths and these denial of truths that we're seeing all around us, which are making the world progressively toxic. So in the late 80s and the early 90s, you were working in women's shelters. How did you end up working in women's shelters? I was very active in the nuclear disarmament movement in those days. And I had a very good friend who was working in a women's shelter. And at that time, it was when Reagan was president and there were massive amounts of homeless people on the streets. And you literally, you couldn't walk anywhere without walking by, over. And I was feeling sick every day that I wasn't doing anything. It was just like there were so many homeless people. And a friend of mine kept saying to me, you have to come to the shelter with me. And I kept saying, if I go to the shelter with you, all I'm going to be doing is working for homeless people. And I'm devoting my life to ending nuclear war. And I don't know how to do both those things. And and finally, one day she, she just said, come. And of course, I went and that was that, as I suspected. And I think the experience, because I worked there for about eight or nine years, just doing groups and doing everything I could to support different kinds of women who would come in beaten or come in cut or come in. I think what I realized then, it's when it really dawned on me, the slippery slope of neoliberal capitalism, the slope of how easily one goes from having to not having, how little protection there is, how little support there is. I I remember meeting a man who had gone from being like this executive at a some kind of firm. And one day a car drove up and hit his son on his lawn and killed him. And after that, he went crazy, divorced his wife. And within a year and a half, he had lost everything and was living in a homeless shelter. And there was no net. There was no one there to support him or protect him or lift him up Um, with women. It just seems even more so that if you are a single woman or if you're cast out of the kind of heterosexist marriage relationship, there's no safety net. I think that is really where I began to see the impact of violence on women, not only the violence of poverty, but how many women in that shelter had suffered rapes, had suffered battery, had suffered some form of violence, which had led them to mental illness, had led them to try to escape homes and they had no place to go to. It was kind of like the emergence of all these intersecting issues that were just one after the other. And I think when I wrote Ladies, which was the play I wrote that kind of grew out of listening to women all that time, it was really trying to look at like, who are the homeless? Because one of the, one of the interesting things I've always noted about being homeless is no one ever wants to identify as homeless. No one sees it as a permanent state. They won't make an identity out of being homeless. It's just something that's happening to you that will pass. So there's no way you can organize homeless people because they don't want to be organized as homeless people. Part of that is also our denial in America that the system has failed. It's the American dream that's there. I'm failing, not the dream. Well, the American dream is really aligned around success. We are 
raised on the American dream through a popular culture. And it strikes me that a lot of the the thinking behind, you know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Meritocracy, absolutely. It only really works in one direction. If you are upwardly mobile, if you are on the up and doing better and better and better, great. That ideologically works great, but it certainly encounters a lot of problems when you start thinking about it in a more 360 sense as well. And it only works for a very small percentage of the population. And I'm I'm not even going to make a judgment because I think there are people who are able to just tough it out and face circumstances and not fall apart. And I don't think it makes them better or less than anybody else. But if you're able to do that, yes, you can rise yourself up. But the majority of people, the obstructions to that process, whether it be around race, whether it be around class, whether it be around sexism, whether it be around, just name it, are so huge. And if you don't have a kind of wherewithal within you, it's a systemic failure. And so I think that dream is so much bigger to people than even their own reality is. Like, I'll give you a story. One day I came to the shelter and um, a group of women were sitting on their bags looking at television and they were all weeping. And I said, oh my God, what is going on? And they said, Whitney, she's so skinny. We're so upset. What year is this? Oh God, it was in the 90s. And I said, ladies, you are sitting on your homeless bags. You do not have any place to live. Why are we crying for Whitney? And I knew in that moment, Whitney was the dream. See, the dream was bigger than their own reality, right? Right. The dream was surpassing even their own suffering. So as long as Whitney was okay, they would be okay. And that's when it really hit me how powerful the dream is. Of course, one of the things that you are always going to be best known for is the vagina monologues. Where did that start? Because you were talking to women, you were um, interviewing women, and of course you had ladies. So where did the the idea for vagina monologues crystallize for you? Well, it was really a conversation with a friend of mine who is an older actor feminist, and <laughs> we were talking about menopause, and we got into the subject of her vagina, and she just started saying things about it that were really kind of surprising to me, that it was old and dead and prune-like and finished. And, she was talking about it as a separate body part, yes, like, and, as and in it wasn't we, part of her it body. It was so much contempt, you know? <laughs> oh. And I was like, really? You feel that way about your vagina? <laughs> and I walked away feeling really heartbroken. And so I started thinking, well, what, what do I think about my vagina, and what do women think about their vagina? So... I just would casually say to my friends, you know, what do you think about your vagina? And every time I would ask the question, something more remarkable, shocking, funny, bizarre would come out of somebody. So I just kind of started taking notes because it was just like, wow. And to talk about it as a thing that's almost separate to your being, I think it's, that's the thing I think when you listen to it or when you think that always strikes me, it doesn't matter who's doing it, is that there's this inherent separation in a lot of the prose between I am me, but then my vagina is a separate thing that right. I'm relating to as as a symbol, as a part of my body. And that that's a really fascinating verbal exercise, I guess. Well, it's not just a verbal exercise. It's what patriarchy's done to us, right? Mm. Patriarchy has essentially cut us off from our sexuality. Going back to early Christianity, going back to any early religions, right? Sexuality is sinful. You know, sexuality is something we should never be connected to as women, you know, our desire, our pleasure, our passion. So our vagina becomes something very fragmented and very separate. And I think for me, certainly doing the vagina models and thinking about the vagina models, I became very aware very quickly how separated I was, my head and my vagina, how separated those were and how how violence, how incest, how beatings had progressively kept me away from my own body because it was the landscape on which all those horrors were committed. And to revisit it meant I was going to have to revisit 
the betrayals, the anguish, the sorrow. I can actually pinpoint the night after years of performing the Vagina Monologues where I actually came back into my vagina, where I actually had the experience of re-entering my vagina. It was like landing like landing on a spaceship in, in my own being. There's a and, number of metaphors yeah, that are layering yeah, on top of yeah, each yeah. other. Yeah, but I think so many women... Um, because we're, we've never been allowed to just be in our sexuality, to own our sexuality, have agency over our sexuality, see it as something separate than ourselves. So and what happened that one night? What, what changed? Well, I suddenly realized that it was me. It was attached to me. I was in it. It was me. It wasn't something over there. And it was fantastic. It was like having lived off the fumes of the motor all your life, you're suddenly, the motor was driving your life. And I think then you begin to see how when women are robbed of their sexuality and made to feel guilty or shameful or sinful or doubtful or just name name something, we're not living off our, our main core body energy. We're not living off our instincts. We're not living off our deepest imaginations. We're not living off our confidence because your confidence comes there. And you're not living off pleasure and your desire for pleasure. You're, you're always muting that. You're always telling yourself you can't have that or you shouldn't have that or you shouldn't reach out or you shouldn't, you know, there's all those rules around it. And I think when you come back into your sexuality, suddenly, well, you're alive. First of all, you're in your life force. And I think one of the reasons I've spent my life fighting violence against women is that violence is against life. It's against the life force, which is the thing that has the potential to fuel us and continue us and fight for the earth and fight for people's rights. You know, it's the revolutionary spirit in us. And I think, you know, looking at the progression of even V-Day and, and I can see when women come back into their bodies, I can see when that happens. And it's amazing to witness when suddenly, suddenly goes, oh my God. <laughs> How long did it take for you to reclaim your vagina and your sexuality as a landscape of, of pleasure and empowerment as opposed to a reminder of violence. I wish I could tell you what happened overnight. I think it's an incremental process. I think the vagina monologues and all the years of work in V-Day, it was really when I had cancer seven years ago. It was, it was kind of like, it wasn't the final frontier because there's always more frontiers that you will discover in yourself. But you know, I, I went one day to get a colonoscopy. A doctor walked out completely gray. I knew it was maybe the end game. I found out within, you know, 24 hours that I had a huge tumor in my uterus that had broken through to all kinds of organs. They didn't know if it was in my liver. They didn't know if I was going to die. And two days later, I was in a nine hour surgery and I woke up literally missing seven organs. 70 nodes. I had tubes. I had a temporary ileostomy bag. I had catheters. But you know what? I was completely body. And as horrible as it was, it was like it was the first time in my life I was body. And that really began this kind of oddly nine-month journey through infections and through chemo where step by step, I really feel it was like a conversion where I really entered and my whole life changed. I left the city. I, you know, I had to be with trees. I had to be with nature. I, you know, it was like I refound myself in the body of the world. You it's know? interesting because a lot of people, when they talk about having cancer, there's this like, there's a moment when they realize that they are in war with themselves. There, there's something growing at an exponential rate within their body that they can't stop. So they, they as a being, are fighting with their body. And it's interesting that you've sort of just inverted that as a, mm. as, a, as a concept. When did you realize that you were no longer at war with it? Well, I think the vagina monologues was definitely the beginning of me not being at war with my body. But 
cancer was definitely the thing that sealed the deal. Like I worship the body. I worship my body, not like my body. Like I think I'm wonderful, but I like, I can't believe what my body has done for me. I can't believe my body has taken me around the world to 70 countries. I can't believe that my body was able to heal from stage four cancer and lets me wake up every morning and still be alive. You know, I can't believe I could lose all those organs and they could reattach things and my body could learn how to function without them. I also can't believe what my body's done in my life. It's allowed me to love. It's allowed me to connect. It's allowed me to have amazing sex. It's allowed me to taste delicious food. You know, the body is just the most extraordinary thing. And I do think our disconnection from our bodies keeps us disconnected from the earth, from each other, from everything really that matters, from caring about people. Because what is empathy but being in your body, feeling somebody else's body? At its height, the Vagina Monologues was being played in huge venues, Madison Square Garden. You had uh, in certain performances stars like Whoopi Goldberg and Susan Sarandon. And I I wonder at the point where it was at its cultural peak, I guess, in in that moment, were you ever surprised? Always. Right. Well, because it sounds like, you know, it was it was a, a process of discovery. But I'm wondering, like, was there ever a moment where you stood on a stage and you looked out and went, how the hell did I get here? Oh, my God. I tell you, everything about the vagina monologues has been a surprise to me. I mean, really and truly, from the very beginning, you know, even performing in a little theater downtown, I was sure I would get shot. I was waiting to be shot. I was waiting. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you the moment when that really hit me. You mentioned Madison Square Garden. You know, it was such a crazy idea to kind of reoccupy this testosterone yeah. stadium <laughs> and fill it with estrogen power. It's you like know? the week after like WWE's been able to And it was really crazy. Yeah. But we actually filled it. And there were like 70 actors sitting in the Volvo choir from Oprah to Queen Latifah to Jane Fonda. And I had to go out and begin the show. And, you know, you're in the dugout, like you're coming out of the dugout. And there's a visual metaphor right there. <laughs> right. And as I walked out, it was dark because I was going to come in and you could feel that breath, the sweat, the presence of 18,000 people. And I thought to myself, oh, my God. Like if you, A, if you blow this, you've really blown it because everybody's going to be really scared after you. But also like, how did this happen? You know? And then the show started and we went on. But there's been moments like that, witnessing the show being performed in Pakistan, witnessing, I can tell you moments where I just go, are we really in Kinshasa with the heads of states while these amazing Congolese actors are performing the vagina looks? Are we really in the European Parliament where the nine members of the European are moaning, you know, through the corridors of power? I mean, there have been, yes, endless moments like that. The other interesting element is is how much the world has changed around it as well. And for years, Vagina Monologues was played at universities and things like that. But one of the things, there's a great story that I, I read about how the trans community has taken it and reframed it a little bit. You, you had a bit of experience with the trans community in terms of adding, I guess, an additional monologue to it. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I think about over 10 or 12 years ago, I met two wonderful trans women named um, Calpurnian Adams and Andrea James. And they were really just fantastic women. And they really, we, we just got to talking and they were like, why don't we do a production, a transgender production? And I just thought that is brilliant. Like it will be a wonderful. And this was long before people were talking about transgender women and men the way they are today. Yeah, this is pre-transparent, pre uh, Oh my God, black, way pre, Jenner. way yeah. pre. So it was pretty radical then. And we we went up to, to this beautiful house in the um, in a cabin in Ojai. And we spent the weekend with everybody just sharing stories and talking about their experiences. And, and for me, it was completely 
brilliant, enlightening, moving weekend. And they asked me, would you consider writing a monologue based on what we're telling you to add? And I was like, absolutely. And then we did the show with all trans women in LA and it was amazing. It was so beautiful and it was so it was for me very life-changing and for all of them. And then it got made into uh, a documentary. And then that monologue was put into the show and it's being done with the show for the last 10 years. So I would say over these last years, there have been many, many transgender women in the show who have not only just performed that monologue, but other monologues. They've been very much a part of the V-Day movement. What did you learn about how trans women relate to their vaginas as distinct from cis women? Like, is it something that, that, that took you by surprise in terms of that dynamic? Some transgendered women didn't have vaginas. Some were in transition and some did. I think what all of them identified with was the oppression, you know, of women and violence and desire and pleasure. I think that was what was most moving is that for those who hadn't transitioned and weren't going to transition, they metaphorically related to the landscape. And for those who had transitioned, there was complete sabbatico. But I think also it was wonderful for those women at that period of time to be embraced by the feminist and women's community. And I think for a lot of those women, that was a very powerful experience. But also a lot of those women had never told their stories before, or a lot of them have been living stealth existences where they hadn't come out as trans women. And that was also a very powerful thing. There has, I guess, been some some change of opinion around uh, the vagina monologues. I think there was a, at least one university said they were retiring it because they felt it wasn't inclusive enough. And I'm wondering, as you hear that criticism, if somebody has that view listening to this, what would your response be? Look, it was written 20 years ago. So, of course, it's not going to include everybody. You know, one play cannot speak to every issue and to everyone, and I never intended it to be that. You know, as I wrote in a time piece, the vagina monologues, I never said... I was speaking for all women, right? I was talking about vaginas. It was very specifically focused. And I sometimes feel like we live in an either or reality. Like we toss out things because a new thing is born rather than adding on to things. Like there's this and now we can make it better. There's this and we can add on to this. And I am the first to say, create your new play, create a play which represents the voice voices where you are. And I think of all the things I'm proud of in terms of what's happened as a result of the vaginologues is how many spin-off monologue plays there have been. Mm. If you go on the internet, you will see the marijuana monologues, the menopause monologues, the yoni monologues, the yoni bot monologues. What's your favorite of all the different spin-offs? I don't know. The veiled <laughs> monologue. I think I counted 75 at one point. The play has definitely, and I'm thrilled by this, encouraged other people to tell their stories. Did we say to plays that we read, you have to tell the story of... You have to be all things to all people. We can't be that. And I never have pretended it's that. I'm thrilled that people are finding ways now to tell new stories, you know? At a certain point, some of the ideas behind it uh, evolved. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, you've alluded to it a few times, something began to take shape in the form of V-Day. For people that have never heard of V-Day before, what is it? As I toured with the vagina monologues, women would literally line up after the show to talk to me. There'd be lines and I would think, oh, this will be great. I'll hear about wonderful sex lives and you know, <laughs> and, and great stories of sexual satisfaction. Not, yep. that's not what was happening. No. Um, I would say 90% of the women lining up were there to tell me how they'd been abused or raped or battered or incested. And I think I was kind of having a little breakdown 
to be honest with you. I, I was taking in so many stories and I didn't know what to do with it. I felt the way a war photographer feels when you're taking pictures of people in war zones, but you don't intervene on their behalf. So in 98, I got a group of women together in my living room and I said, okay, I have this play. How could we use this play to end violence against women, to end it? You know, I was naive enough then to believe, you know, 20 years ago that maybe we could end violence against women. But not as young. Yeah. And by the way, I haven't given up that dream, but I'm, I see the stubbornness now of patriarchy. As I, I said in a recent article that I, I feel it's recurrent virus like herpes, you know, if the conditions are right, it will outbreak and we're in a massive outbreak right now. But we really made this decision. We were going to do one show. We were going to raise money for local groups in New York City who were fighting violence. We were going to get great actors together, put on the show, do a fundraiser. And we did that big event at Hammerstein in New York with all these amazing actors who all somehow agreed to do it. And it was amazing. And it was like, you really could feel the earth move. And after that night, somebody said, I want to bring this to colleges. And the next person said, I want to bring this to Pakistan. The next person said, I want to make vagina pajamas. And somebody else said, I want to make vagina lamps. And it was just, and it was the beginning of the movement. And even last year, I mean, I keep thinking this will be the last year. And last year there were, I think, 800 places that did shows, you know, that raised that many millions of dollars. Every year people do it in their own communities, do it with their own community members and raise money for local groups, and all that money goes to groups. That's been going on for 20 years. And I just want to say to the activists in Australia and uh, around the world who have raised really $100 million, it's it's an amazing thing. And it's been done through theater and it's been done through local women empowering themselves and each other to put on the show. And, and, and men have been involved in that process as well. You know, to me, what's most exciting about it is to look back and see how 20 years ago we couldn't say the word vagina anywhere. You couldn't say it on television. You couldn't say it at the gynecologist. You, you, mothers couldn't say it to their daughters in their own bathtub. They called it poochie or pookie or down there. They never said, you know, and now we say it. And it's real and it's here. And, and when you can say things, when you can name things, they exist. And when they exist, it's much harder to do bad things to them. As part of V-Day and, and the activism around it, there's been a few really interesting milestones. Uh, in 2004, you established a safe house. In fact, I believe it's the first safe house in Kenya. Why was that so important? What, was, what did that moment mean for you to be able to establish that? Well, you know, I had gone to Kenya because I was working on The Good Body at that time and I had heard there was a woman who was stopping the practice and I wanted to meet her. And it actually wasn't Agnes. It was, there was an organization, but I walked into this little school in the middle of Kenya, in the middle of Narak, you know, in, in Masai Terra. And there was this amazing woman who I can cry just talking about her because she's such a light in this world and just so powerful. And she was standing there with a box. It had a half of a woman's torso and there was a vagina. And then there were all these vagina replacement parts. And she was teaching girls and boys in this classroom what a healthy vagina looked like and what a mutilated vagina looked like. And she had various vaginas, which showed the different thorns and the different cuttings and the different, and she was literally walking through the Rift Valley, carrying her box, going from Maasai, you know, cause Maasai are nomadic um, and they build their wonderful 
structures out of cow dung and when they collapse, they move on. So she literally had been walking for years and she had saved like 1,500 girls. I was like, who is this woman? And we should say that rates of um, female genital mutilation, particularly in Maasai culture, is, is very high compared to other parts of Kenya. It's, yes, it's, a, it's very high. Alarmingly high. And at that point, there weren't rules, there weren't laws. Yeah, now, like, and now there are, but they're often ignored. I just was blown away by her. And so I, I simply said to her, what could Vide do to support you? And she said, you, you could get me a Jeep. <laughs> I could get around a lot faster. Yeah. So we bought her a Jeep. And in that year, she reached thousands of girls. And then we said, what else could we do? And she said, well, if you gave me money to build a house, I could have a place where girls ran away to and they could be safe and no one could cut them. And she is such a genius. I mean, she had developed an alternative ritual coming of age ceremony, which really incorporated the Maasai traditions and cultures. And, and since then, done a reconciliation where she's able to bring the children back to their families to, to do a reconciliation where their children um, and the families accept them back without being cut. And I have to say, I, I believe she has reduced FGM probably in two thirds of the community. When she gets done, it will be done. I mean, she's has an incredible high success rate. And now that the law supporter, it's much easier to do what she's doing. But for me, to be able to take the money that Vagina Monologues was creating and to put it into a grassroots activist who was leading her community in her tradition, in her way, who knew exactly what she was doing, what better thing could we do? You said in 2007 when you went to go visit the Congo that it was one of the worst, the worst treatments of women in a place that you had seen. Take me back to 2007. You arrive there. What is it that you are seeing that led you to that conclusion? Well, I want to say, first of all, that I was invited there because I don't go anywhere. I'm not invited. Yep, uh, fair enough, fair I, enough. I, you know, I don't. I, you don't just rock up expecting to see horrible things. No. And and I was invited by Dr. Denis McGuege, who is an astounding gynecologist who's actually been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, I think, twice now. And I had interviewed him in New York. I actually didn't want to interview him because I didn't want to know about the Congo. Because again, like I knew if we knew, it would be because we were already overextended and didn't have resources. But then I read his CV and I was like, how could I not interview him? And when I interviewed him and I heard what was going on and looked at his eyes, which were literally bloodshot from the pain he was witnessing and the number of women he was sewing up as fast as militias were ripping them apart, I knew I, I had to go. And I went and I spent weeks and weeks interviewing and listening to women and again, asking them what they wanted. But I will tell you that I have been to a lot of war zones. I spent time in Bosnia and Kosovo and Haiti and the list is endless. But there was something about the Congo. There was something about um, the synergy of rampant and historical and hideous colonialism with um, this economic exploitation of minerals with racism, with the devastation of women's bodies. It just seemed to be this synergistic conflagration of horrors. And I realized that if this were allowed to happen, if, if women were allowed to be used as tools, the way they were being, you know, I mean, basically the whole structure of the mining system was that you would go into a town, the militias would go into a mining town, they would rape the women. They would have husbands rape their daughters and sons rape their mothers. They would desecrate the family structure. They would desecrate the family. The families would flee and they would take over the mines, right? So this was being employed as a corporate tactic to get to minerals and resources that actually belonged to the Congolese, but were being stolen by multinationals. It was like, this is where neoliberal capitalism, patriarchal, racist colonialism was going to merge together in one horrific 
outcome. I think we all made a decision in the movement then that we had to serve in whatever way we could the women of Congo. What happens to a family unit when that cuts through? When men witness their wives or their family be raped and they're powerless, men are devastated. So men are completely heart sick, are completely emasculated, feel like they have no power whatsoever, and then they become angry. Okay, so there's violence as a result of that. Secondly, because of traditions, women are exiled when they're raped. They're no longer seen as part of their families in many cases. So they're alone. They're by themselves. It is such a fragmenting, desecrating process. You know, as I heard Dr. McGuigan say once, this isn't just rape. This is the end of the longevity of the Congolese people. This will be the desecration of the families of, of Congo. I think that is, is a terrorizing aspect to this. But I think also what happens to women who are terrorized and tortured and raped and with no support and no resources? What happens to, to sons who witness their mothers be raped? You know, how, how do they grow up? What do they feel? I mean, there's so many consequences and outcomes of that that last a very, very long time. So you as a, as a person, as an organization, what can you do? Is there any restorative path for those people that you can play a role in? Well, I'm very happy to say that what happened is that Christine Schuler Descriver, who is who lives in Congo, who's half Congolese and who's grown up there her whole life. She was introduced to me by Dr. McGuege and we spent a lot of time asking Congolese women what they wanted. And what they wanted most of all was a place where they could heal and where they could become leaders and where they could take their own destinies into their own hands. And so I'm very proud to say that seven years ago, we were able to build something called the City of Joy, which I personally think is one of the greatest programs on the planet because it's run by the Congolese, owned by the Congolese, directed by Congolese. There's nobody in the outside who works there. There's no internationals who work there. It's one of the most beautiful healing centers I've ever been in. Women come for six months. Um, 90 women for six months. They are healed through gorgeous group therapy, through theater, through dance. Arts is a huge part of the program. They learn their rights. They learn self-defense. They learn agriculture. And then they go back to their communities and they share what they've learned and they become leaders in their community and they help bring new women to the center. We were able after that to then get um, um, 350 hectare farm, which is such an astounding place. And we have pigs and we have nine tilapia palms and we have avocado trees and we have rice and 200 people are working there. Many women who leave City of Joy then end up going there and becoming agriculturals and, and farmers, which is the main occupation of people in Congo. And I think we're creating this very um, holistic, very, um, you know, turning pain to power, turning pain to planting programs where women are actually changing and not just surviving, they're thriving. You know, the people who run City of Joy keep very strong tabs on what happens to women. There are networks now all over the Congo of City of Joy graduates, and they are leading their communities. They have collectives. They are fighting the government. They're becoming healers and doctors. They've gone to school when they never would have gone to school. I think there are programs we can create, but they have to be determined by the people on the ground, like Agnes determined her program in Kenya and the Congolese women determine their program. What we can do who are outside those countries is we can trust them. We can serve them. We can find them resources and we can get out of their way. 
unless they want us in their way, unless they want support, unless they want advice. But I think what I've really learned, um, because I've had the fortune to meet such incredible grassroots leaders, is that women know in their communities exactly what they need to do. You know, they've been doing it without resources. So when they get resources, they're able to really multiply their efforts because they have support. And I think what we can do in countries where we have resources is find those resources, but not go in to save people or to direct people or to organize people or to tell people what they want or to give them funding based on our idea of what they need, but to actually sit and listen what they need and then find the resources and give them to them and trust them. When you encounter these moments, these stories, these situations that are so devastating to even just be witness to, how long do you let yourself experience that before you have to click over into, all right, what can I do? For many years, um, when I was really, you know, being in Bosnia or being in Haiti or being in Afghanistan, I, I really felt compelled to really hear stories and the depth and details of stories. And I can't anymore, to be honest with you. I just took in too much. And I think it was a part of why I got sick. I don't need to hear stories anymore. Like, I feel like I'm convinced, you know, my life is dedicated to ending violence against women and girls. And I think if you're on the front lines, you know, at at Pansy Hospital, for example, where women, um, Congolese women are doing the intake of the stories in one year, three of them got cancer. Like stories are real. Stories come into us. Stories enter us and they're meant to enter us. That's how we feel for other people. But you also have to be very careful what you do with your body when you're listening to that story. You have to move. You have to do body work. You have to treat your body well. You have to cry. You have to, I think I overwhelmed my body. You know, I didn't know what I feel now is that I, I don't listen to the details of stories anymore. I did that for 20 years. And I think there are other people who can do that now. I think we we have to do certain things at certain times and other things at other times. One of the other interesting things that I guess is a recurring aspect of this conversation is you're very good at connecting a broader ideology or a broader sort of sociopolitical structure, so the patriarchy or neoliberalism to an on-the-ground event or, or a series of events. Do you still find that there's a resistance out in, as you go to talk to events and people and politicians, that there's a resistance to, to think about the interaction between uh, social structures, economic structures and, and people's everyday lives? Is there still a, a bit of a, a kind of a, a logic gap for people as huge, you go talk to them? Huge, How do you go about fixing that? See, the thing is I think unfortunately neoliberal reality has atomized everything. It's atomized us. We're all living in our individuated, our little consumable units, right? Where we're just moving ourselves, quote unquote, ahead. But it's also atomized our understanding of story. And so it's very hard, I think, to get people to understand that you can't band-aid something. One of the things I love about City of Joy is it's a holistic program. It's looking at rights. It's looking at the government. It's looking at your body. It's looking at the story of Congo and and colonialism and how did we get here. All these things are a part of how we change things. And I think one of the problems we have right now in America is that I think Trump has arrived because we didn't want to look at the story, right? We didn't want to look at the history of racism in America and Jim Crow and incarceration and what 
black people have suffered over. We didn't want to look at the story of Native Americans and how that land was stolen from them. We didn't want to look at at sexism in America. And in a way, he's kind of like this pussy outgrowth of our somnolence, of our denial, of our refusal to look. But it's actually calling us now to say, what is the world we want to be living in? Do we want to continue with neoliberal racist patriarchy? I mean, it's really the question. And there are people on the progressive left who really are calling this up now to ask to look at the big story. And there are people inside the system who want to keep the structure the same as long as they have power over that structure. The real question now is, do we deconstruct this structure and build a new one and a new paradigm? Or are people going to keep having power over this structure, whether they be black people, white people, white men? My dream is that we now are at the place where we have to reimagine the entire structures, right? We have to, we have to reimagine what structure is going to provide housing and livable wage and healthcare and reasonable lives for the majority of people. Let's just look at that. What What is the structure that would do that? You know, what is the structure that we're going to have to build? And I, and I keep thinking about looking at like, how do we uproot racism? How do we uproot sexism? So these are systemic things as well. That, yes. That, that, you know, let's let's put it out there. There's, there's no assumption of an easy fix to any of these things because they are interwoven within the, as you say, the structure of how societies are built. And I, I guess I'm curious about where where did you land on how you go about tackling these things that are so interwoven into the how the scaffolding of modern life? I'll give you an example with One Billion Rising because One Billion Rising grew out of V-Day. We were coming to our 15th year and yes, we'd had victories, a lot of victories, but violence against women was still really prevalent. I was in Congo at the time and I was just there right after cancer and we were all dancing and I I was looking at these women dancing who had suffered some of the worst atrocities on this planet. And I was like, the the power of their dancing was so mind-blowingly strong and the energy of that. And I just thought, oh my God, what if a billion women on the planet and all the men who love them danced for one day and we could shake up this energy and we could catalyze something in the body politic, right? And, And literally in our bodies, both at the same time, that could really begin to create an imaginal energetic force in the world, right? But I think what I've learned over the five years of doing this is everybody began to say what they needed to dance for to end violence against women. And some people needed to, like the Lumads, who are this beautiful indigenous tribe in the Philippines, were fighting for their lands and fighting to stop mining and fighting to stop the rapes that were happening to them and the killings when people were taking their land. Other people were fighting to stop rape on college campuses. Other people were fighting to stop young women and older women of color in the United States from being gunned down from the police, right? And it began to become this really beautiful intersectional reality where we couldn't separate out everything. That violence against women is utterly connected to ending racism and ending poverty and and stopping the plundering and the destruction of the earth and economic empowerment. And I think Part of what we have to do is think outside our silos. When you take that step back and you look at all those things connected as one, some people find that paralyzing. To connect all of these different issues, to stare at it is to be overwhelmed. How do you go about tackling that sort of mental barrier, I guess? Well, to me, it's less paralyzing to think that we're in solidarity. When I look at the connections between these things, it makes me think, oh, wow, maybe we we could actually come up with a vision 
where all these things are connected as opposed to, oh my God, these things are so overwhelming. I can't do it because the truth of the matter is we're not going to end violence against women unless we look at all these factors. It's just not going to happen. You can't patch it up like a bandaid over here and think it's ever going to be solved without a systemic approach. I would say like in your own community, how do you create something where you hook up some of those issues together and you can fight with other people in those issues? How do you join other people's struggles and invite them to join your struggle so that you, be, you begin to learn about each other's struggles and then educate each other about each other's struggles. So that's what we have to do. It's about educating ourselves to see where are those connections and how do we get out of our own silo, which we're just struggling in, which we have to continue going with, but how do we step out of our own silos and sometimes our privileged silos and serve other people's struggles? In that moment when you realize how widespread your cancer was throughout your body, did you ever consider what you wanted your legacy to be? Um, that I was useful. <laughs> Eve Ensler, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. All right, It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. This season features guests from the Antidote program and it was hosted by me, Mark Fennell. There you go. Uh, it's produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiraway. Music mix by Evan Williams. We were recorded by Josh Craig, mastered by Cullum Jensen-McKinnon, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. And we will catch you on the next episode of It's a Long Story. Goodbye.